Well, I would ask you, take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 10. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts, We're looking at a big chunk of Scripture, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 35 this morning, and uh, looking at the second great section of Peter, we saw him do the healing last week, and now this week he is making his way to a Gentile's house, and this is a big deal for him. As, uh, as you're getting settled, I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about the fact that one of the most difficult things, or maybe the complex things about being a Christian, is that oftentimes God pushes us to the edges of our comfort zones when we are a Christian, and, uh, and sometimes we are pushed into places we never want to be, and uh, and, and at times, we can be forced to deal with people or situations or problems or changes or things that we would say, I never want to deal with that, ever. And yet, there's that thing inside of you that says, I, I've got to go do this. I've got to go face this situation. And it can be scary, right? I mean, it can be intense. It's a tough thing. And, uh, and you ask, why does God do that? You know, what is it about God? Is it just some kind of like crazy, you know, side of him where he just wants to torment people? Well, obviously that's not true. But what is it about it? Well, I think there's lots of things that God does in that process when we're forced to have to deal with ourselves. But one of the things that I think I've noticed that I want to share with you that I think we'll see in the text today is the fact that, that when we are forced to have to come to the, to the dealing with these things we don't want to deal with, facing problems and people and issues and struggles that we don't want to deal with. Oftentimes when we get face-to-face with those things, what happens is that we end up facing our own prejudices. See, we can come to a situation and we could say, you know, God could never use that situation or God could never work in that situation or this situation is done or this person's hopeless or this thing, this problem is beyond fixed. And, and we can make the final word on that emotionally, right? We can get to that point where we say, it's over, it's done. I, you know, God would never use that. God can't use that. There's no way. That isn't how God works. And then we're forced into these situations and when we're forced into them, all of a sudden, we see God at work in ways we never could have imagined. And we're left there going, wow, okay, God is bigger than my prejudices. God is bigger than my opinions. God is bigger than my frameworks. And sometimes when tragedy befalls us, problems befall us, and we think, I could never face that, and then you get through it, and you go, wow, I got through it. Or the person repents. Or you're able to stand firm at a moment you thought you would be weak. All of those things happen and you begin to realize God is bigger than any of our prejudices. And this is what we're going to see today. In fact, we're at this point where the church is about ready to go out to the Gentile world as it makes its way out from the Jewish confines to the non-Jewish confines. There's lots of prejudices that these early Christians have. Lots of things where they would say, God doesn't bless that. God could never use that person. God would never be over there. God wouldn't be in that room. Lots of things where they have God already defined in a nice little tight box. And the first thing that God has to do is blow up the boxes before they'll go. 
And that's what's going to happen. God is going to throw a hand grenade into the life of Peter and just blow up his boxes. And the church has to witness this so that it would actually go and evangelize. Because to be honest with you, our own prejudices are so strong that we will find every reason not to advance the kingdom. Every reason to say, no, this is it. This is the line. This is how far God goes. And so this is what we're going to see today as Peter makes his way out. This is a risky moment. And Peter's going to be put in a very uncomfortable situation. But at this risky moment, God is going to blow up his boxes. And so this is what we're going to see today. We'll see all of this work. God is going to do some preparatory work. He's going to prepare this Gentile to receive the gospel. He's going to prepare Peter to to preach the gospel. And then he's going to put Peter in a very uncomfortable situation. So much so that in the text, as we read it, you'll see Peter acknowledges, no Jew would be standing where I'm standing right now. He actually says that. That's the Leston translation, but, but this is in essence what he's saying. No Jew would be standing here, but I'm here. He gets confronted, brought to the edge of himself, and then we'll see how it's overcome. And then we're going to conclude by taking of the Lord's table, which is the fitting conclusion to this passage, because the reality is this. God's power, God's love is all manifested through the cross. And that's the great leveler. We all stand condemned before Jesus, but then he took that condemnation in our place, and and we'll celebrate that, that that is where the power, the life, the hope, and all that comes from. So we're going to see all that today, and and I kind of hope that your prejudices get challenged. I'm not talking about surfacy or big prejudices, the little things, the little things that control us, And, and I'll try to highlight some of mine along the way so we can get some ideas of of ways that we can apply this account to our life. But let's begin. Let's look at how God does this preparatory look. Let's see how he starts preparing Cornelius. Follow along as I read in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour, so it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so we're introduced to Cornelius. We know a few things. He's a centurion. A centurion means that he is the leader of... Should I do the math test? Can you figure out how many soldiers he leads? Century is how many years? A hundred. So how many soldiers do you think he leads? A hundred, right? Sorry, shooting you like you're five there. Okay, you know, right? Centurion. He's a, but just as you read those words, let those the reality of what they you know mean pop out to you. He leads a hundred men. He so he's a, and and his cohort is the Italian cohort. So he leads a group of Italian soldiers. Got a hundred of them. We learned some things about this guy. We learned he's a devout man who feared God. Not only did he fear God, his whole household did. His servants did. Everybody in his charge feared God. Now, when you see that element of fearing God, I want to explain to you what that means. 
There are two kinds of Gentile worshipers of God. You need to know this because these words show up uh, in, in, in Acts. The first type is called a proselyte. You'll see that word show up. A proselyte means this. It's a Gentile who fully converted to Judaism, follows the food customs, the worship customs, the rituals, everything. If it's in the Old Testament, they follow it. They go to the temple. Every time there's a temple celebration, they are there. They're called proselytes. It means they fully have given themselves over. The second type of Gentile is called a God-fearer. They only do two things. First, they believe that Jehovah is the God of Israel. And second, they give money to the temple. But they don't follow the social customs. So they're not, they're eating pork, they're, they're not circumcising their, their boys, they're, they're not doing any of that. Now, the Jews, they could handle the proselytes. That's why Philip could jump up on the cart with the Ethiopian eunuch and not feel like he was doing something wrong. But they didn't really, they enjoyed the money that came from the God-fearers, because right? they gave cash to them, and they liked that. And, and so they celebrated the fact that they got some income from them, but they would never be in the presence of a God-fearer. In the temple, they would have this, the court of the Gentiles, and they would reduce the God-fearers into this back corner and tell them that, you, you know, you guys are just, because you're not following these customs, you're not, you're not walking holy, you're doing all these pagan things, you're not clean, we can't be around you, and so they, they drew these lines, okay? So, the, so this guy is a God-fearer. Now, we discover something about him, though. He prays, and he's praying to God. He's praying regularly. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and as he's praying, this angel shows up. It freaks him out. Obviously, you know, anytime an old angel shows up, it's a freak-out moment. It would happen to all of us as well. And this angel's in his room. He's freaking out. And then he says something that is so powerful. Verse 4, if you want, like, the surprise of the text, this is the part that would, if you were, you know, reading this early on, whether you were Jew or Gentile, this would be the thing that would make you go, What? When he says, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That is a powerful statement. Now for a moment, stop and think. The average Jew at that point in time would have, if he wanted to pray, what would he have done? He would have grabbed some pigeons or a couple of turtle doves. He would have been singing psalms. And he would have gone up to Jerusalem and he would have given these pigeons over to a priest who would have killed them. And at the hour of prayer, he would have gathered where the incense was going up and his doves and his, and his uh, birds were being killed. He would have then had himself and along with the priest offered his prayers to God with all the people. It's a big event to pray. This is a guy who doesn't follow any law, any custom. He's in his home eating a pork sandwich, saying, God, I love you. And God is going, not only do I accept your prayer, right? not only do I accept it, it's a memorial. What does that mean? God is saying, this prayer is the standard of prayer. It's the standard. What is a memorial? Right? If, I, if you're going to fix, right? if I said, listen, Sunday, I want a memorial right here to me, right? I mean, after firing me, <laughs> you wouldn't build it, right? Because a memorial means you're fixing some kind of statue with my name on it. You're putting it right there. 
He's saying, this prayer is that. I have received your prayers. I have received your offerings. And I'm fixing them as the standard. What does he mean by that? What is the reality? The reality is this. This man believed God by faith, didn't he? He came to God and said, hey, I might be a Gentile. I might not follow any of the customs, but I believe you exist, and I'm all in. I'm all in. And God said, that's it. That's the standard. How did God prepare him? God prepared him by making, by by letting him know, I've heard you, I've accepted you, and it's enough. No more. Your faith is enough. Not only that, I'm establishing that. This is the pattern. This is the pattern. The church needed to read this because when they go out to the Gentile world, they need to realize that they're not going out to the Gentile world to clean up the culture, to get it back to the moral fibers of what it should be. They're going out and saying, man, trust Christ by faith and you will be justified. You'll stand in his presence accepted. It's a beautiful message. This is the memorial right here. This is it. This is the standard, right? And Peter's going to hear this message. It's going to be very powerful. So his faith is enough. There is the first thing. Now we got to see God preparing Peter. Let's move on in our story. He moves from Cornelius to Peter, setting the table with him. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, so about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Mark those two words, common or unclean, important words. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. See how God corrects that. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry from Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send, you, send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Okay, so we see what's going on here. Peter goes up to the roof. He's praying. He's getting hungry. They start making the food. He falls into a trance. He gets the vision. What's coming down on this sheet is everything that Leviticus chapter 11 says, do not eat. Read through, not now, but read through Leviticus 11. See the food they can't eat. Lowering down, voice says, eat it. Simon is going to stand firm, kind of like Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan. Satan says, you don't turn this you know, stone into a bread. And he says, no, I won't. Right? This kind of thing's going on. I'm going to stand firm. No, I won't eat this. Leviticus 11 says, no, and I won't do it. And uh, I'm not going to touch the common or unclean. But then there is the statement by God. What? 
Don't call unclean what I have cleaned up. We're getting a little insight into the gospel to the Gentiles. God's the one that does the cleaning. God's the cleaner. We're not the cleaners. Our job isn't moral transformation of the Gentiles. Our job is to proclaim the glorious name of God because he cleans their hearts. He's the one who does it. Right? Don't do this. Don't make the statement that they're unclean. Now, you might say, well, this is not really fair because Leviticus 11 does say don't eat those things. Right? So is he... You know, is this like some trick by God? But the reality is this. God made it clear from the very beginning, and if you read through all of the Old Testament, you'll see this. God never intended for just these dietary laws to be the end game of it all, like just moral laws to be the end game. These moral laws were setting the table that, they, that Israel was to be different, but that difference was to lead to the one who would come, who would take this, the, the curse of sin and redeem mankind. And through that redemption of the cross, people would be made clean. And the cleanliness doesn't come from not eating pork. The cleanliness comes from the cross. That's the message. But Peter is struggling, struggling to see this. He doesn't get it. Even though God's the one that makes things clean, he's not seeing that yet. It's hard because there are prejudices. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, and you think about it, we all have these kinds of prejudices, don't we? We do. We can, we can look at a situation and write it off. We can, right, I, I, I can identify with Peter. I can look at a situation and say, that thing's hopeless. God, you, you know, it's hopeless, right? I have declared it, right? So therefore, it must be true, right? We can do that. We can even write our own selves off. You might look at your own life and say, oh, man, I've done so many horrible, wretched things, or all these horrible, wretched things happened to me. I'm damaged goods. I'm, I'm worthless. God could never use me. And God is saying, do you understand? I'm the one that makes things clean. I'm the, I'm the guy who renews. I'm the one who gives life. Don't write the last chapter of your life based on your limited knowledge of redemption. But it's amazing how we do this. You see, the reality is, and this is why, by the way, I, I think... One of the things that, that convicts me from this passage is to, is to pray the cross for people, right? Just to actually come and have a gospel prayer and say, God, I believe by the power of your cross you can change and redeem and care and, and restore and renew. You can bring life to the situation that's dead. And you can pray the cross for yourself. God, I, you know, Satan's haunting me with all my past sins, and they're echoing in my brain, or all the things that happened to me. And you stop and say, wait a minute, the cross, that sin was crushed, and I'm not defined by that. I'm defined by your love. I'm defined by that. God makes clean. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. That's the message Peter needs to learn. He doesn't get it yet. He's struggling. He's confused. But then the Spirit says, go with these guys. And so he's got a couple of Gentile servants and a soldier with them. And what do you want with me? You know, I'm picturing these guys yelling at the gate, Peter, there's some guy named Peter. And he's up on the roof going, hey, what? You know, hey, are you the guy? And you, this whole weird thing's happening. All right, I'll go. So now Cornelius is prepared. And Peter is prepared. So now let's see how Peter's prejudices is confronted. Okay, let's move on in the story. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius, 
was expecting them. Look at this. And he called together his relatives and his close friends, right? We got a party going now, right? Not just one Gentile family, man. We got like lots of them showing up now. Okay, it's a big deal. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. All right, he doesn't have any clue what to do. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, listen to Peter's words, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You hear that? So when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago, about the ninth hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and began, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The next day he rose and he went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. It's a very powerful moment. He's got all this, you know, Cornelius is inviting everybody he knows. Right? His whole network's there. Peter says, you know, you do realize I shouldn't be here. (laughs) No Jew would be standing in this spot. But God told me that I shouldn't call anyone unclean. God told me I shouldn't write situations off based on my preferences based on my prejudices i shouldn't do that um that's not the way it works and cornelius says you know god told me my prayers were heard that there was a remembrance a memorial to my prayers that that god registered them that they're sitting in heaven right now and we want to hear what you have to teach us now next week lord willing we'll look at that but here's peter in this house of a bunch of gentiles he's feeling uncomfortable no doubt feeling intensity, no doubt, but yet he's recognizing God is pushing him out of his comfort zone, pushing him out of the the box that he has, the way God works in. And it is amazing how we build those boxes, isn't it? It's amazing how we can stand there and say, God can't use this, and God would never do this, and God only works this way, and I don't like it when this happened because God doesn't use that. That's just the human mind does that. And Peter says, you know, I had to have this vision and, you know, all this happened to show me that I cannot declare this. Ichabod. Ichabod just means the Lord has departed. I can't declare that. I can't call you dirty. Okay, so now notice our last thing. Peter's prejudice is overcome. He's confronted with it. He sees it. He makes the declaration, I'm not going to call you unclean. So now he moves to having it overcome. And look at verses 34 and 35. These are profound verses. These are the verses upon which the entire Gentile movement of the gospel was launched. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable him he begins with that word truly which is the word amen which means stick a fork in it as we would say this is true 
This is true. And when you begin with a truly, you are making the strongest affirmation possible. This is the undeniable truth. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, if you fear him and desire to follow him, he accepts you. You notice what he says. You fear him. God, I love you. I'm all in. That's it. It's all that's needed. You might say, but what about this person? And what about this? And what about if they bring this to the table? And what happens if they come in a situation and, and they, they've got two wives? Or what happens if they come into the situation and, and they, you know, hurt themselves or mutilated their bodies or whatever? All kinds of stuff that people do to themselves. Anyone who falls before God and says, man, I trust in you and I'm all in has a seat at the table. That's it. There is no distinction. What's amazing, though, is that we make distinctions. We do. Now, I, I don't think in, right here in this room people are making distinctions like, you know, that somebody based on some big overt thing, we would say, you know, that somebody in another country is any less savable than us. I don't think we have those kind of giant preferences or prejudices. But it is amazing how the, pre, how the prejudices show up in little ways. In little ways. Right? What, what are some of the things that, that in our culture that we deal with? Well, God would never use that kind of music, right? And that's, a, that's one we would have, right? We're going to write God off of that. He can't use that. He's not powerful enough to use that. We only know he uses this kind of music. Right? Isn't, isn't that true? I remember, here's one that I dealt with. This was, right, I'm going back a long time ago because it's the only one I ever dealt with, and it was a long time ago. No, I'm kidding. Um, it sounds this way, but if you go, I remember... It was like 1999, and I was back at a uh, pastor's conference, and I sat at this table with this guy who was a technology guy, and he worked for Logos Bible. And so this is 1999. The only thing I knew about the Internet in 1999 was that you could check email. So I was like technologically like really behind the curve. I mean, I didn't get an email account until like 1998. I mean, this is it. This is how behind the curve I was. So I'm sitting with this guy at this pastor's conference, and he says, he starts telling me about all these things he wants to do with technology and internet technology and social technology to help the church. And I'm listening to this thinking, oh, that's not the church. The church can't, you know. I'm like totally writing the guy off because I didn't understand the technology at all. I'm thinking, God, no, you know, preachers write their sermons on paper and they get up and they preach with a Bible and people show up and this is church. Church isn't all this stuff on the internet and da 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 da. And I remember having these reactions and then coming home and saying, Heather, I met this guy and you know what he wants to do. This isn't church. God can't use that today as I preach from an iPad. And our sermons are broadcast on the internet all over the world. And I've gotten emails from the Bahamas and Finland and all that, right? God is powerful. My problem is that I think that God's vision is only as wide as mine. Isn't that the problem? That God loves my music only. That God loves my comfort level with technology only. That God loves, you know, the books I love and the TV shows I love are the ones God loves. It, right? I mean, that, and, and whether you know it or not, saying that, you might think, I would never verbalize that. But it is amazing what makes you roll your eyes, isn't it? It's amazing as I'm sitting at the table going, huh, yeah, right, you know, 
guys like you are destroying the church. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm thinking. But I didn't understand it. And how many people around the world, people in countries that could never hear the Bible now can hear it on their phone and hear access to preaching and, and have connections with people and all kinds of great stuff because you see, I can't put God in my box. The prejudices have to be confronted. If they don't get confronted, we don't advance the kingdom. But not only that, if, if we don't confront the prejudices, there are people who even within themselves will be paralyzed. They won't move forward because they're going to think God can't use me. I'm unclean. And the reality is, it's just not true. It's not true. Peter made it clear. God shows no partiality. Anyone who calls upon him. Anyone who says, Jesus, I love you. I'm all in. Boom, is in. There's the memorial. There's the standard. That's the prayer God hears. That's it. So, as we look at this passage and we, 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 we deal with these prejudices, let's think about these for, for our own life here. Because in just a moment, we're going to partake of the table. And when we partake of the table, I want you to stop and realize the point of the bread and the point of the cup is the realization that God himself has taken care of our sin. And the cross is so powerful that it not only can redeem the worst sinner, but the cross is also so powerful, and the power of God at work in this world is so powerful that he can redeem everything. It's incredible. And the reality for us when we partake of this today is to kind of ask ourselves, where have we kind of limited God? What are the prejudices that keep us from moving forward? What are the areas that make us roll our eyes? The, the things where we can become judgmental. Ways maybe we've hurt each other in this body because somebody comes along and says, did you see this movie? And you go, oh, no, I don't go to movies. You know, those kind of moments where we drew a line in the sand and we hurt somebody because we said, God doesn't do that. God can't be at work. We've treated them as if God is calling you unclean. And if you stop doing that, then I'll accept you in my presence. When we start treating each other that way, see, that's the kind of stuff that the cross is saying, don't do that. The redemption that God can bring to the life of somebody is deeper than the moral transformation we can give with our attitudes. Isn't it? Right? If I judge you, all you're going to do is conform to me. But if I point you to Jesus, you'll be transformed into his presence. Isn't that better? We don't need a bunch of me's running around, right? We need people like Christ. And so we point people to Christ. We hold the gospel high. And we say, boy, that's, it. that's where the power is, man. That is where the power is. And I'll pray the cross for this person. I won't write them off. I'll pray the cross. And so today, let's deal with those prejudices. And so I'm going to call the people forward who will be distributing the elements. Here's what's going to happen if you're new here. We'll pass out the bread and we'll pass out the cup. We're just going to pass them out. A couple of songs will be played. As they're being played, uh, you can just partake on your own. But what I would ask you to do as you're partaking of these things 
is to, to, to think about the power of the cross. To think about it as being the very power that redeems. And say, God, just forgive me of the prejudices that I hold. Forgive me the attitudes that I hold. Forgive me of the people I've judged. Forgive me of the situations where I've limited you. And deal with those prejudices. So come forward, those of you who are helping to distribute the elements. And I'm just going to pray. And as the musicians come, they'll play a couple songs and they'll pass this out. But just join me in prayer here. Father, I thank you for the cross. Because the cross does more than just guarantee heaven. It transforms us into the image of Jesus. Lord, may we be about gospel transformation in the lives of people, not moral transformation into our images and our preferences. And God, I pray that this truth of what Peter learned would be true for us and help us to unite together through the cross. And as we partake of this today, may we remember that we too were in need of a Savior. And that this cross is so powerful that it can take things like music, can take things like the internet, can take things like books, and art, and transform it from, from testimonies to men to proclaiming the glory of Jesus. May we be about that gospel transformation, Lord. May we be a place that is so filled with the love of the cross that when people come in here, they're welcomed. And they know this is a place where Christ reigns and transformation, gospel transformation is our focus. Lord, may this worship be sweet as we partake of your table together. In Christ's name, amen.